Hi, and welcome to the jungle. My name is Tom Kislingberry. I host the Read and React podcast with Sticky Z. It's all about defensive players. We know it seems like a scary world with all the savage beasts and dark corners and mysterious ruins. So we want to help you through it. We fight through the linebacker lemurs and the nose tackle nasties and the cornerback creepers so you don't have to. IDP is all about getting an edge and we will give it to you. Now, Sticky, pass me that machete. You're listening to the Dynasty League Football Podcast, where there is no off-season. Welcome back to another episode of the DLF Dynasty Podcast. You are listening to episode number 293. I'm your host this, this week, Matt Price. For the first time in six weeks, it's somebody other than Dan, but he is here along with Ryan. And we were all so jealous of hearing Jeff on other podcasts like the Tradecast that... Uh, we, we really needed him to come back home, back to the DLF show. So, De- Jeff, how are you doing tonight, man? I'm doing terribly. <laughs> All right, perfect. This is going to be a great show. We're already on the right track. Dan, how are you doing, man? I'm good. Unlike Jeff, who, uh, who, who brings that negativity to us. And, and maybe that has something to do with the reason why he's not, he hasn't been on in a while, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's because you're too humble, uh, Dan. That's why you just told us, right? Indeed. You're too humble. So, so humble. Ryan, how are you, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. Glad to be here again. Yes. So we did wrap up our uh, our rookie recap series last week. I had six weeks of that. So if you haven't checked those out, please do go back and do that. Um, and off of that, we are going to be starting up a listener league surrounding those, uh, those those episodes. So we have our first three selections that we have made. So welcome to the DLF listener league. John Warden at Sport and Wharton. Kyle Swartzlander at Cups McGillicuddy and Martin audit at coach martin three so you guys are in get in touch with ryan dan or myself on twitter and we will get you set up for that when we get that thing rolling so um, we are going to transition now though since we are just ahead of startup season i have seen some startups already going on though because people are crazy already uh, (laughs) about that thing but uh we are we are a little bit early than that i generally don't get started until march if i am doing any startups but uh, we wanted to kind of look at startup strategies ahead of that and, and kind of talk about a, a few different kind of popular strategies and, and, and then actually put those into a practice because the February mock drafts where we helped Ryan set ADP uh, each month have started up. So we had an opportunity to do that. So before we get started into the draft, actual draft, you guys, uh, we'll start with Jeff here. Do you generally go into startups with a specific plan? And if so, do you have a kind of a default or, or preferred strategy that you use and why? I am the weirdest mix of super duper hyper planner slash never make a plan guy you'll ever meet. There's some things that I'll spend weeks or I mean just numerous way more hours and time invested in it than I ever should on that sort of a thing. Uh, and then it, it's all or nothing. It's either that or I just go in cold. Drafts, I always just go in cold. I never have a plan ever. I just kind of play it as it comes. Uh, whether that's the best strategy or not. Uh, maybe, maybe not. This might be one of those uh, do as I say, not as I do sort of things. I suspect. How about how about you, Dan? Do you have a, a general strategy that you kind of stick with? Typically, I'm most interested in trying to build a roster that that has a good mix of youth and veterans, but but with maybe a slight emphasis on winning right away. I really feel like in every draft I've ever been in, there's at least one and sometimes two, three, four, or even five guys that are so youth centric that you can capitalize. And that's the number one time uh, in any league to be able to capitalize. Usually you figure that out relatively quickly. Uh, but you know, for the most part, I'm, I'm trying to build a team that can win now and sprinkling in enough youth to have some longevity. And, and Ryan, I know you're obviously the author of Productive Struggle, but uh, you know you have mentioned lately you've been kind of changing that strategy a little bit. So ha- do you have kind of like a modified Productive Struggle you're working with in, in most cases, or is there something else you usually walk into drafts with? Yeah, I still think a lot of the, the pieces of Productive Struggle are, 
are things I would follow as I prepare for a draft and, and begin a draft. And I'm one of those guys that Dan is talking about that slants towards younger players, adding future draft picks, things like that. But yeah, the number of the number of us, the number of those people that that want to punt or do productive struggle or, or whatever you want to call it, seem to be growing really every year. So because of that, sometimes you just can't help but take advantage of the the veteran value that's that falls. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we did have uh, a question from at Roto Librarian, and he was very interested in how kind of startup strategy changes for you guys when there is an auction involved and also salary cap and contract leagues. And I know Dan and Jeff, you guys are going to be doing a salary cap contract specific episode, and I'm sure we'll do an auction specific episode as well. But uh, uh, we'll go back to Ryan here first. Is how do, how do those things change for you? I guess, um, you know, kind of give a few comments on each if, if you don't mind. Sure. I actually don't have uh, very much experience in, in the salary cap uh, type league, so I'll, I'll leave that to the experts there. But as far as auctions and contract leagues, I think taking part in those, um, the kitchen sink leagues and some of the others that, that I've gotten to play in in recent years, and really kind of moving away from drafts in general, that's what has, has helped me to create kind of more of a balanced roster building strategy i guess because i see i think you see the value of those veterans falling and they're just so cheap in in auctions and it becomes even more apparent that you can get some values and and build a balanced team you can still get your your young players if that's what you want to do and uh and find those larry fitzgerald antonio gates types for uh for real values you're still hanging on to Antonio Gates for one more year, huh, Ryan? Well, yeah, if he's hanging around. <laughs> uh, Jeff, uh, I know you've got a lot to say about salary cap, so maybe you can help us out there. How does that change? How does your startup startup strategy change uh, with that setting? Yeah, salary cap is is a different animal from my regular seat to my pants figured out as I go strategy with a startup. Um, I have much more detail to keep spreadsheets. I plan things out. I make 17 different budgets and adjust them and tweak them and compare them and decide on how I want to do it. But, I, you know, I maybe sold myself a little bit short. I definitely like to build one around wide receivers regardless. Specifically in, in salary cap leagues, that, that actually does change a little bit back towards running backs. I know running backs are kind of the, the soup du jour of the day anyhow. But uh, with with a shorter span and with my ability to give them shorter contracts, which reduces the risk, I definitely like to slant towards older players, riskier players, running backs, that sort of a thing, knowing that I can get out from under them or offer them short-term deals, which maximizes my ability to capitalize on that upside and minimizes the downside if they get suspended or hurt or whatever the, the situation is. So I guess to answer your question briefly, it's I'm definitely willing to take more risks um, and and in in a salary cap setting than I ever would in a regular startup. I found myself and I kind of I kind of mentioned this a second ago, but I found myself over the past 3 or 4 years as I've been doing more auctions and more uh, contract leagues just doing a, a kind of a regular league or a traditional league with a startup draft has really lost some appeal for me. Uh, I just wondered if that's the same for you two guys who have have had a lot of experience with those type of leagues. Regular leagues in general have kind of started to lose their appeal for me. And it's not just due, I don't think, to to salary cap leagues. I think it's due to, to quarterback leagues and, and to other formats that aren't kind of your more standard sort of a deal. Um, I still like a good snake draft, but, I mean, I'm snake drafting your mocks at least seven or eight times a year, Ryan, maybe, maybe even more than that. So it's like I kind of get my... I get my appetite for snakes filled, and then I'm still in two or three redraft leagues every year. Uh, there's just nothing better than a good auction startup. Yeah, I just feel like an, an auction for Dynasty. I mean, like I don't know, I don't know how you really do a snake draft for Dynasty anymore. Just so much more flexibility. I, I do think there is something to be said for being able to like move around in a draft and trading picks here and there, uh, which you know you can't necessarily do in an auction as eat more as easily. But the, for for building a roster, I just think don't think there's anything like an auction. Dan, any any thoughts here on salary caps or contract leagues and how it changes your strategy going into startups? Well, I, I think the biggest difference, I guess, commenting on auctions versus a startup draft is that the primary dif- difference between a draft and an auction is that in a draft, it only takes one person to be interested in a player to set the value for that player. 
Whereas in an auction, it's, it takes multiple people being interested. So that creates an opportunity for better value on these players. And I think that's what Ryan was kind of referring to earlier, where if, if you're in a room with a whole bunch of, of other owners that aren't that interested in veteran players, the amount of value you can find in those veteran players is far greater than if you were in a draft because you would have to still spend that pick, spend your asset and a higher asset to make sure to procure that, that veteran player. Uh, whereas in, in an auction, you only have to spend one or two dollars. That's like spending the last pick on those players, which frees up more money for the higher, higher end quality. And that, that's pretty much the, the controversy or the conversation that is had with, with drafters versus or guys who, who prefer auctions. I fall on that side as well. Auctions are just more fun. They offer, offer a lot more strategies and uh, create a, a, a better beginning to a league as well. But that's, a, that's probably a, a different conversation. Yeah, and, and we'll certainly get into those, those formats more uh, specifically going forward. But for now, since we're focusing on this mock, uh, we'll look at drafts for the rest of this episode. Um, and before we get into our teams and, and the, the thought process behind our picks, let's go ahead and talk about the individual strategies that, strategies that we chose. Uh, we kind of pigeonholed Ryan a little bit and made him do productive struggle. I don't know if he necessarily wanted to or not. Uh, but Ryan, just kind of introduce this idea to people that, that may be new to it and, and maybe discuss a little bit of the pros and cons. Sure. So uh, productive struggle is just basically my name for uh, punting uh, year one, which was a popular strategy far before I came along, but it has been gaining popularity over the years, as I, as I mentioned earlier. When I first wrote the Productive Struggle article in 2014, uh, one of the keys to that was I suggested waiting as long as you can on, on the running back position. And I think that's one thing. And if I were to write an updated version of Productive Struggle, which maybe I should do, that's one of the things that would change because the the past two or three years has has really had an impact. We've seen so many more talented running backs, young running backs come into the league. What I called at the time avoiding running backs was really just avoiding overrated short-term players. And, and that's at that point, that was largely uh, what filled up the running back position. So, but other than that, um, Targeting youth, young wide receivers especially, um, the one aspect that I wasn't able to do in the mock that we participated in was trading down. That would be another aspect of productive struggle, moving down in the draft, stacking picks in the mid and later rounds, and also acquiring future first rounders, which also obviously was not part of this mock draft. But uh, basically, acquiring future picks, lots of young players and a willingness to lose in year one, which a lot of people, including Dan and, and maybe Jeff are not willing to do. What happens when you miss on, on all these dart throws? Cause we're picking a lot of players that are, you know, not necessarily proven, you know, after we get out of the, out of the first couple of rounds of the draft, we're, we're starting to look at with this particular strategy players that don't have a huge track record. So let's say you get to year two and your year one punt does not produce, you know, uh, half of a starting lineup that you're comfortable with. What, what do you do then? Well, I mean, you're going, you're going to miss on a, on a lot of your players, maybe, uh, uh, maybe even a lot more than your league mates who are uh, playing it safe, taking some established veterans. But the ones you hit on, ideally, you're going to hit big on. If you're if you're drafting rookies and second year and third year players, really throughout the entire draft, um, you don't have to hit on them all. You don't even have to hit on half of them uh, because when you when you hit, you're going to hit big. And, and plus, losing in that uh, first year, you're also likely getting the one one or or the one two in the second year, which is basically like adding another top twenty five player. I I think what's overlooked a lot of times, Ryan, when people look at that and look at the all the negatives and the and the negativity surrounding the the strategy is that you still get a first round pick in that startup. You you still had the opportunity to get a leap guy. You're just focusing on a, a much younger elite guy. And maybe maybe when you have the eighth pick, you pick the 12th best player because he's only 26 and the other guys are 28. But 
it's not like when you when you take this strategy into a startup draft, especially, you still you you're still putting cornerstone pieces around around your team. Yeah, for sure. And and actually, in the article that's now about four years old, kind of the way I introduced it was talking about um, that most people call that term or that strategy punting, and that does have that has such negative connotations with it. I mean, even in even outside of fantasy football, just in the game of football, it's it's often viewed as a negative thing. But um, so when I when I heard that term productive struggle and, and kind of borrowed that for fantasy football purposes, I thought it was the uh, the perfect name because you are losing uh, most likely in that first year. Uh, but but it is with a purpose and um, and you're planning to win long term. Jeff, any thoughts on the productive struggle strategy? I don't I don't hate it. When I first started out in all this, I was definitely whatever the opposite of productive struggle is. And the longer I play and the more I go about it, the less I am that way. The more willing I am to to go younger and, and if it means kind of punting in a spot or, or weakening myself in a certain lineup spot for a year or two to, to advance my cause long term, I definitely I definitely have skewed that way. And kind of to piggyback off of what Ryan said, or what uh, Dan said rather, it, the confusion of productive struggle and punting, I think, is is was part of my issue at the beginning. Anyway, I don't think that they're the same thing necessarily. You know, there was a time, uh, maybe a couple of years, right after I started writing for DLF, so we're like at four, four and a half years ago now, where where people kind of like right after Ryan's article came out, I guess, right around that time, where people confused the two. And, and and skewed so hard to punting year one and took so many risks and didn't get those building blocks. And when we start, start talking about Ryan's draft, you'll see that there's three or four or five players on his team that are objectively building blocks that, that the vast majority of us would look at that and say, hey, these are five guys that you can really build around. And then the rest of the, the things around him are more of the struggle part. Uh, and I think that, that Ryan has kind of really perfected that in a way. And I think owners have really come around to that more than where they were when kind of all of this first came out and folks were maybe overreacting and, and, and kind of forgetting about the productive part and just skipping right to the struggle. No, absolutely. And as a commissioner, when this strategy was, was popular, it was, I don't know about you guys, but it was very frustrating as a commissioner because you would see people try this and, and do it not as attended. And then they would have this terrible team and they just walk away from it because they didn't know what to do. Um, but, uh, and I actually, I, I tried it for the first time this last off season uh, in two leagues, KS5 with Ryan and, and then Capitalist Pigs too. And I tell you what, it was really hard to like, just watch all of those good players go by and, and stick to the, the youth heavy pro but I'm really looking forward to this offseason when I have all that capital uh, for this rookie class. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. You really have to be able to to kind of, you know, be okay with not not being competitive year one. And that's really tough for me. And I know it's tough for you, Dan, and you're representing the win-now approach here. So um, I guess any thoughts you – any other thoughts you have in Productive Struggle otherwise introduce uh, win-now strategy and, and kind of like what that means to you and maybe what the pros and cons are. It seems like we covered uh, the productive struggle pretty well, so we, we can move on. I, th- I think the win-now approach also gets uh, looked at in an in incorrect light from time to time, uh, especially by those who focus a lot on that productive struggle strategy. And that that's j- simply because um, people pigeonhole a win-now team to take players that are 28 and 29 and 30 years old uh, the elite players in the NFL that have very little or or a short amount of time left playing at that level. That's not necessarily the case. I I really feel like the win now approach, much like I was talking about when I when I mentioned it to Ryan about his approach, you still get an early pick, and it doesn't mean because you're winning now or trying to win now doesn't mean you don't get to pick a 25-year-old elite running back or choose the 26-year-old wide receiver over the 29-year-old guy. That Names like Antonio Brown and Julio Jones come to mind immediately with the first-round pick when you're in win-now mode, but there's nothing that says you can't choose uh, Mike Evans instead and, and still get the younger guy. The, the, the approach really changes in the mid-rounds when you start to look at uh, comparable players 
Um, but one one might be the younger guy with the upside. The other guy is the consistent wide receiver too. That's when you when you if you're a win now owner and building a win now team and roster, you might take the veteran Adam Thielen over the upside of of, of another player, even though he's younger. So I, I think there's uh, validity in all approaches that we're talking about here, I, I tend to skew towards the win now. However, throughout this exercise, I felt like uh, youth was pulling me in that direction a little bit more than it it has in the past as well. So I, I echo the sentiments that Jeff mentioned earlier that there, you know, it, there's there's a lot to be said about each of these strategies, and and a lot of times the best. Uh, approach is to have an open mind and simply take the best player and and go with what what that draft brings brings you. So a lot of times throughout this process, I was taking the veteran, the the bigger name, maybe uh, the Des Bryant's of the world. But had I really been drafting this team, I might have gone in a different way um, and still felt like I built built a win now team. Do you think, Dan, that the win now strategy in general? is easier when we look at the depth that we have at running back. It seems to me like the running backs are kind of more win-now players anyway because they do have the shorter windows and the depth is so incredible. To me, it makes the strategy as viable or maybe more viable than ever. Yeah, especially with with the elite assets that are at the top because when you spend that first-round pick on the running back, and especially with the names that we're talking about, the Gurleys and the David Johnsons and Le'Veon Bell, those guys, Ezekiel Elliott, they're all young guys. And then then that rookie class that we had as well. So you can feel like you're winning now and building that win-now roster and still have the youth on your team. So so I think very much it, it has to do with that running back position. Yeah, I wrote a, a, a largely <laughs> ignored piece earlier last year. Um, it's not nothing new or anything, but I kind of titled it the rolled strategy, W-R-O-L-D, because we, we know that these these older wide receivers in the 26, 28 plus range is really when they start hitting their peak production. So with all these young running backs coming on board, we also know that running backs are the opposite, that they have a lot of their productive years when they are younger. So it kind of just the, the way that the, the draft season has played out and, and with all these young running backs coming in that are so good, it kind of lends itself to that kind of win now approach anyway, like you said, Jeff, because you can get those young running backs then and, and everybody hates the old receivers and you can just get those old receivers that continue to produce later in your draft. Ryan, any thoughts on on when now before we move on? Yeah, just I thought that was a great point by Jeff, uh, as as always, really. Um, but <laughs> I get I get that a lot, especially around yeah. the house for my wife. My wife says that all the time. <laughs> but that's the state of the running back position three or four years ago is is really what gave the win now approach really what opened the door for uh, criticism there because, okay, if you're trying to win now, you're going to build, uh, you're covering your starters positions or uh, that means you're drafting two or three running backs in the first eight rounds or so. And there's a good chance that, that they're not even going to be in the league in a couple of years uh, again, because of the, the talent that we saw at the position now is, is totally different, obviously. And that really, it, it changes that strategy. It changes the, I think the outlook of that win now strategy. And I really think it kind of blurs the lines between all of these strategies. Win now versus uh, productive struggle. It's, it's really all about picking the right players. Yep. <laughs> it's easy when you just pick the right players. Uh, and, and like you said, uh, the, with, the, with the age of those running backs before we got this influx of talent, that kind of lended itself to that protective struggle. But also it lended itself to Jeff's chosen strategy or the one that was chosen for him, I guess, the zero RB strategy, which has really gained in population, uh, population, really gained in popularity and population, I guess, uh, since especially that 2014 receiver class, Jeff. So talk a little bit about zero RB, what it kind of, I guess, kind of means to you and and the pros and cons of of that. Zero RB can be a little bit misunderstood. uh, And it's, and to me, it actually is a strategy that's probably a little bit more applicable to uh, to redraft than it is to dynasty, which isn't to say that it can't work here, especially in a startup, which I think is is the place to do it. Um, for me, zero RB is basically I, I waited seven rounds till I took a, I took a running back. 
Uh, there were spots where I saw running back that maybe I would have taken if I wasn't so concentrated on this. But it wasn't even really that much of a stretch. Um, the, the general idea is basically just, you know, find a group of guys that you can patch things together with. You're basically streaming running backs, uh, and then you try to add guys on the back end of your roster that that maybe they're an injury away from, from hopefully being a productive contributor or or maybe they're a guy with high-level athleticism that, that you feel like maybe just needs an opportunity. They need a veteran to get out from in front of them. Um, th- that's kind of the, the basis of Zero RB. Uh, honestly, and I guess maybe we can get into this a little more later, for me, I think it's probably in today's day and age a little more important to get at least one centerpiece RB. And this is kind of like how, how I like to build my teams in general. I like to find one guy that I feel really good about. doesn't necessarily need to be Le'Veon Bell, but just one guy that I, I feel like I can play every week and not really have to worry about. And then I do take a pretty strong zero RB approach to the rest of most of my rosters, uh, you know, with the with the exception being if I've got a team that's really ready to win, um, if I if I see a chance to improve myself in my starting lineup, obviously I'll take it. But but generally speaking, I like the idea of zero RB with the one little asterisk that uh, I, I kind of want that one centerpiece to build around, which is not something I necessarily did here. But uh, my wide receivers are pretty sweet, so there you go. I think we can call that the the one RB approach. Yeah, I and and, and for <laughs> and uh, you know, it's not. Look, you can win with almost any different strategy, but for me, I think the one RB approach is probably a better strategy for most people. It's definitely an easier strategy to navigate if you're not the kind of owner that wants to spend your entire life uh, trying to negotiate trades for second string running backs just in case they break out. You know, if you're not the kind of guy that's looking to trade third-round picks for uh, for Corey Clement in the in the instance that the Eagles don't draft another running back and J.H.I.E. gets hurt, if that's not your cup of tea, then maybe maybe stick something like something closer to one RB. The one thing, the one place that I really like the zero RB approach is in leagues where only one running back is... is uh, necessary in your starting lineup or required in your starting lineup. So I, I think the approach changes with with the rules, and, and obviously all approaches are this way and all strategies are this way. But it, it certainly uh, makes it easier to, to take this strategy and run with it in a startup auction or draft if you only have one guy that you have to put in your lineup every week. Strongly agree. And that is the format we did here is start one RB, which definitely made this a little bit easier. I got seven guys and only one spot or six guys, I think, and only one spot to fill. It makes it a heck of a lot easier. Yeah, definitely. in a, in a start one where you have all these flex options. Um, I, I do think that there's been kind of a, an approach or, or I guess a thought process out there that zero RB is dead based on our last two seasons where we've had really productive running back positions. But I, I think that's maybe a bit of a misnomer because a lot of these, these guys that these young running backs that, that won people leagues and, are, and the reason why people are calling zero RB dead is really the exact example of zero RB. Like if you drafted, you know, uh, uh, Alvin Kamara and, and Kareem Hunt late in, in your, in your draft, then guess what? You had some zero RB candidates that had really helped you, uh, get to a title. Um, so, and, and there's obviously more examples of that too, not just the rookies. Um, but it's kind of a, uh, I think it's a, a incorrect thinking that zero RB is dead just because of, of the production of their RB position in the last couple of seasons. But, uh, uh, Ryan, any thoughts here on zero RB before we move on? Yeah, a lot of thoughts, actually. Um, I, I think you said that very well. Uh, it's it's really one of the, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a, a nice way to say it. It's really short-sighted to say that zero RB is dead because of what we saw this, this past year. Uh, and just as you said, uh, it, if, if, any, if nothing else, it's it's evidence that it has worked. Um, if you had a redraft or a... Uh, MFL 10 league or something like that, and you got Kamara or you got Hunt, then you probably won the league because of that. And you started with uh, a couple of great wide receivers, most likely. Um, So Sean Siegel wrote the uh, Zero RB article with a redraft focus in mind several years ago. And uh, I I think this is correct. I hope it is. But a, a year later came out with a similar or a follow-up article called the modified zero RB. And that's basically what Jeff is talking about. Let's get that one uh, 
that one guy we can count on and then go from there. And I think if it, if you are working in leagues that are playing in leagues that only require one starter, uh, like Dan said, then, then that's going to, that's going to be the perfect strategy for you. Uh, grab one of those guys. And, and now there are so many of them to choose from grab one of those guys. And, and then you can still focus on the wide receiver position. If that's how you choose to build your team. Um, and then the other point was, I think what has maybe hurt zero RB and probably productive struggle as well is the follow-up after year one, after you lose in year one, part of the plan is now let's go acquire some running backs so we can have a championship caliber team or a playoff team. And that's much harder to do right now. Three years ago, it was, it was fairly easy to buy a guy who was going to finish as a high-end RB2 uh, because everybody hated running backs. Now everybody loves running backs, and those players are, are going to be very expensive. So that's that's kind of another negative, I guess, at this point of productive struggle or zero RB. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, so let's let's move on to my approach. I, I don't even know what to call this, you guys. I just said it was called a balanced approach. And, and you kind of see this out there. I think, again, this is something that maybe happens more in redraft necessarily than dynasty, but a balanced approach where you see, see owners you know, feel like they really need to fill out each roster spot before they build any depth. Uh, at the other position. So it's kind of counterproductive and sorry, counter to like a zero RB approach where you're really focusing on the wide receiver position. In this case, you really want to get that kind of stud anchor at each of those positions. So you feel, you feel good about it, right? It just makes you feel good to see four guys down there at each of the major positions that you know, you don't really have to worry about. The problem with that is the opportunity cost you know, when you when you take one of those early early quarterbacks, then you're missing out at a, at a more pers- uh, important position and the same again at tight end, unless you're able to really get one of those elite guys at the top. So uh, that's kind of the approach that I took. Uh, I do often build rosters this way, uh, but but kind of uh, not at the I guess not at the at the wider at, at the tight end and, and, and quarterback positions for the most part. And, and really, I guess more specifically, the quarterback position, especially in these one quarterback leagues, because even as uh, we'll get into the, the teams here pretty soon. But even at tight end in, in a draft like this, I was able to get uh, uh, Greg Olson down in the eighth round. And, and while he's not a super stud tight end, he, I feel like we can still consider him a pretty solid tight end when he's healthy there. Um, so. Any thoughts here, any of you guys? I'm not, I'm not even going to pick somebody. Whoever wants to throw out some thoughts here on, on the balanced approach and if it's something that you think works for, for you or, or is a good approach for, for a new player maybe. Sometimes when I see the balanced approach or, or see owners try to try to use the balanced approach, it seems like they take it to the extreme. And, and sometimes we see Aaron Rodgers go in the top 15 picks because of that, because they want to that anchor at quarterback right away, want to make sure they, they get that guy. And, and I think that's the mistake that you see a lot of times. In fact, sometimes you see it taken to the ultimate extreme where Aaron Rodgers goes in the first round and Gronk in the second to the same guy uh, right on the swing. And they, they feel like they have to lock up those two and have the number one player at, at that pos- those two positions and it, and it just sets the the franchise if you will back so much that it, it's not necessarily uh, it, or it's, it's a lot more difficult to dig your way out of that so I, I, I watched as you put your team together you you didn't necessarily take it to the extreme at all you you waited till the sixth round on quarterback eighth round like you mentioned at tight end and you were able to to build those other positions so I think inside this balanced approach there's a lot of of different aspects to look at another one might be the studs and duds approach that that some use where they trade those mid-round picks try to acquire more high-end picks and and really solidify that starting lineup that wasn't available to us obviously in in this mock but but it is a valid strategy that some people employ uh and i think it would probably fall under this balanced balanced approach or or what most people call studs and duds yeah and and much harder to pull off in in a draft format again than, than an auction format you know 
All right, so let's look at uh, let's look at what we did. So I don't know if it was a conspiracy theory or not, but I, I ended up in the middle somehow between Dan and Ryan once again after being in the middle all uh, for the entire rookie re- recap <laughs> series, basically. Uh, but Dan ended up with the 104 pick. I ended up with the 105. Ryan with the 106, and Jeff with the 110. So we'll run through uh, uh, Dan's roster here real quick first, and just kind of get an overview of what he did with the win now approach. At quarterback, he has Jameis Winston and Tom Brady. At running back, David Johnson, Mark Ingram, Tevin Coleman, Deion Lewis, Amir Abdullah, Akram Wadley, and Devontae Booker. At wide receiver, Allen Robinson, Adam Thielen, Des Bryant, Devontae Parker, Chris Hogan, and Deion Kane. And at tight end, Jimmy Graham and Troy. <laughs> Help me out with the last name here. Fumagalli. Fumagalli. <laughs> Troy Fumagalli. Uh, a rookie that he he picked up in the in the 14th round here, Dan. So talk a little bit about your roster here and, and how you think it, it fits that really fits that win now approach. Well, I, you and I were talking a little bit before the podcast about how how the draft really went, and I kind of I like I said earlier, I felt myself being tugged towards youth, although I was trying to or supposed to uh, put together this this strategy of the win now approach and and for the most part I stuck to that but there were times specifically uh in the earlier rounds where I really felt like I took the veteran in the case where I might not have done that in if it were actually a team I was building for instance in the third round I was staring at Adam Thielen and Jarvis Landry uh I think T.Y. Hilton was there and the name that just stared me right in the face was Juju Smith-Schuster. I think that upside is, is just a, just huge. And at this point, uh, I, I might have gone that direction if, if it weren't for trying to be, be consistent with, with this win-now approach. So um, I, I struggled internally a little bit, and that wasn't the only instance. For sure, my pick of Des Bryant in the fourth round, something I probably wouldn't have done uh, it, regularly, um, even though I consider myself a win-now drafter. So um, overall, I, I think it was a nice mix. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I like to mix with youth with with, with that veteran. Um, Tom Brady with Jameis Winston certainly fits that bill. David Johnson, Mark Ingram, uh, that's kind of what I was trying to do there. And then Allen Robinson, the younger guy with Thielen and Des Bryant, uh, Jimmy Graham with Troy Fumagalli. So uh, I, you know, as far as the strategy goes, I feel like I executed it relatively well. When I look at my roster, though, uh, I, I raise an eyebrow um, regularly uh, at every position. Like, man, I, that's that's not the guy I really would have taken. So, I, you know, if, if the true philosophy or strategy is win now, and this is what win night now is, I need to come up with a new name for, for what I am because I don't qualify. <laughs> uh. Yeah, there. I mean, we're going to run through. Hopefully, we're going to have time to run through some of these picks and the decision making process went in there. But one of my questions for the end was if you would make some picks differently if you weren't kind of pigeonholed in the strategy. And it does seem like that's the case. And really, you know, each of these four strategies, while they are uh, kind of well defined, I, I think that's the really the goal or really the 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 moral of the story here is that you need to be flexible in these kind of drafts and, and be able to deviate when when value presents itself in, in different forms, even if it means kind of kind of going off of your initial plan there. So uh, my my roster again was a balanced approach. I ended up with Cam Newton, Blake Bortles at quarterback, Christian McCaffrey, Derek Henry, Lamar Miller, Chris Thompson, Ty Montgomery, and Kalen Balaj at running back, wide receiver Antonio Brown, Jarvis Landry, Cooper Cup, Jordy Nelson, Curtis Samuel. Jordan Matthews, Michael Mitchell, and a tight end, Greg Olson and Adam Shaheen. So again, my goal here was to really kind of balance out at the wide receiver and running back position and, and, and mostly kind of ignore the quarterbacks. If, if Aaron Rodgers had slipped to me in the fifth round, I probably would have pulled the trigger on there, him there um, to get that stud at quarterback uh, that late in the draft, but it didn't work out. And, and then a bunch of quarterbacks went at the following turn. So I went ahead and kind of felt like I had to take Cam Newton just based on the strategy that I was doing. But I was quickly pretty sad about that as 
we got farther down in the draft and, and saw players like like Ryan be able to scoop up Philip Rivers in the 18th round, which is kind of absolutely ridiculous. Um, and then at the running back position, the same thing. I started off with two young guys and then kind of backfilled with some veterans behind there. And then at, at, at wide receiver, you know, I started off with Antonio Brown. I felt like that's kind of like the ultimate kind of balance piece. You know, he's old, but I can balance that with some youth later in the draft with, with Landry and Cooper Cup. And I think those three guys all have kind of like 100 catch potential. So that is, a, is more of the balance, the kind of like week to week consistency uh, that I wanted there out of that position. And then at tight end, it was really just kind of grabbed the la- one of the last consistent guys when Ryan once again sniped me on Evan Ingram. I think it was in the fourth round, one pick before me. I definitely hit my keyboard a couple times, <laughs> just like in the, the rookie recap draft there. Um, and then backed up the old man Olsen with Adam Shaheen, who I think is has some pretty immense upside um, coming in. So um, I was pretty happy with what I was able to accomplish there. Uh, Jeff, any thoughts on these first two rosters before we get into you and Ryan's? I don't love or hate anybody's roster. And I think my, part of this might might be just the combination of experienced owners that know how to draft as much as anything. Um, but yeah, as I'm looking up and down your rosters, I definitely prefer yours to Dan. And I don't know if I've mentioned this, but your beard is much better than Dan's and you're much more handsome than him. So maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's got me a little bit biased. I'm not really sure. But no, I like... Uh, I mean, it's a little bit weird that you drafted Cooper Cup on a team. I know that kind of goes against, you know, you've never really been a big Cooper Cup guy, which never. is, so I don't know if that was a stretch for you. <laughs> What's really weird that he didn't mention is that he took him in the first, which is, which is, no, uh, I'm sorry, I'm all over the place here. Uh, no, I like, you guys, your rosters are both fine. Uh, I don't, I don't love mine, and I don't love Ryan's either. It's kind of a weird thing, and maybe it's because we did shoehorn ourselves into these strategies. But as I look at these and listen to you guys talk about them, I'm thinking, oh, these are decent teams, but I'm not really excited by by any of them, to be honest. Yeah, and I think part of that, too, is and one of the reasons why we wanted to do it during the mock was because we knew that we were going to be drafting with, you know, nine other really good owners um, who really know what they're doing. So that, I'm sure, uh, you know, had some players had some players not slip to us that might have in, in, a, in a maybe a, a kind of more of a public mock. Um, so we'll, let's get into Ryan's roster here. Patrick Mahomes and Phillip Rivers at quarterback. Dalvin Cook, Marlon Mack, Jared McKinnon, Mark Walton running back. And then, of course, the zero RB position took a lot of wide receivers. Mike Evans, Corey Davis, James Washington, Mike Williams, Martavis Bryant, John Ross, Taewon Taylor, Lacan Treadwell, and Tyrell Williams. And then at, uh, at tight end, really impressive group here, even though they're young as uh, Evan Ingram, O.J. Howard, and George Kittle. Really like that tight end group there. Ryan, uh, walk us through your thought process with this roster and, and maybe just a few, you know, maybe a few picks that you would have done differently. Uh, sure. The, I really think the first four picks, if this were an actual um, league and, and regardless of being stuck to one strategy, I, I was happy with those. Evans in the middle of the first, followed by Cook, Corey Davis, and then Ingram in the fourth. Uh, if, if I started an actual dynasty league with that group, I'd be pretty satisfied with that um I, I think from there my fifth round pick was james washington that would probably be one that i would change looking maybe for more more of that balanced approach uh, especially after grabbing two wide receivers already at that point as far as the general strategy other than some of the pieces i've, I've already talked about taking cook in the second as i said goes against the I guess the original productive struggle, but I think that that has to shift a little bit. So I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't have any issue with, with doing that. And then I took three tight ends, as you mentioned, I think in the first 12 or 13 rounds, which probably would look a little weird, but the other piece of productive struggle or punting is you're, you're almost just looking for best player available, regardless of position. You're looking for players who are going to gain value in the coming the coming months and the coming year or two. And uh, I like all three of those rookie, or I guess second year tight ends. Yeah. So that's it. Yeah. Those tight, the tight end group is just beautiful. Every time I look at it, I wish, I wish all of my rosters had those three tight ends on them. So nice work there. Jeff did zero RB and his roster uh, it starts off a quarterback with Jared Goff, Ben Roethlisberger at running back, Kenyon Drake, Deonta Foreman, Tariq Cohen, Giovanni Bernard, Corey Clement, and Matt Breida at wide receiver, Michael Thomas, Tyreek Hill, Alshon Jeffrey, Jeff Gordon, Jeff Gordon. It might as well be Jeff Gordon at this point. <laughs> easy, Josh Gordon. Easy. Slow <laughs> Josh down. Josh Gordon. 
Golden Tate, Dante Moncrief, and Keelan Cole, and at a tight end, Hunter Henry and Gerald Everett. So, Jeff, talk a little bit about your roster here and, and how you think it worked out, I guess. Boy, did I hammer wide receivers hard. My first five picks were wide receivers. Uh, and I ended up with, I think, four out of my – three out of my top 13, four out of my top 19, and five out of my top 24, which, I mean – Anytime you can do that and you like wide receivers like I do, I felt pretty good about that aspect of it. Got a little bit tougher after that, uh, I, you know, once I got uh, got past Golden Tate in, in the fifth. Um, kind of had to, at some point, turn my focus elsewhere. I took Henry Hunter in the sixth, which I rather liked. Um, if, I, if I had to do something over, perhaps I would have taken Rob Gronkowski instead of Josh Gordon. I'll be honest. I didn't expect Gronk to be on the board at that point in the draft. I legitimately assumed he was gone and didn't even look for him. So that was one of those... If this was a real draft, I don't think I would have made that mistake, being that it was a mock draft. you know, Stuff like that can be kind of easy to slip by. But I took Gordon a couple of picks ahead of Gronk, I think three or four. And uh, that one maybe I don't know if I really, really regret it, but there's definitely you know a little bit of regret there. Getting Hunter in the sixth kind of made up for that. I feel like that's real good value. Uh, I kind of also regret Jared Goff in the eighth. Uh, I looked at Martavis Bryant there, and I think Ryan took Bryant a couple of picks after that, maybe three or four picks after. Uh, I, I got Ben Roethlisberger in the 17th. Philip Rivers went in the 18th. It kind of makes Goff in the 8th look silly. Although I believe Goff is, is either my QB 6 or 7 right now, so I'm definitely very high on him continuing this. So it's kind of nice to lock that position up for the next 10 years. But really this is, is all about running back, as we all know. Um, Drake in the 7th, I really like the value there. I think his ADP in January was something in the mid or upper 50s, which makes him a good value, I think. In fact, of all the January mocks, he didn't go past like 62 or 63 in any of the mocks. So to get him all the way down at the 10th pick in the 7th round, I feel really good about that. Uh, Assuming the Dolphins don't draft running back, which is anybody's guess, they certainly could add something there. I don't know that they view him as a 20-carry guy, as evidenced by by his usage even once he got uh, got the the ability to be featured. Um, It's kind of risky, but if we can keep him somewhat featured in that 15-touch area, I don't mind him as my RB1 with this strategy. I really like uh, I really like Foreman if he can come back from the Achilles, which if Steve Smith could come back from an Achilles at 80 years old, I, I think Foreman can do it in his early 20s. I think he's a better running back than Lamar Miller already, so I could have a nice one-two punch there. Then I took a couple of flyers uh, with I, I have Tariq Cohen, who we're not really sure how he's going to fit into this. I've seen some speculation that he's going to fit Nagy's offense brilliantly. That would be nice. I got a couple of flyers in Corey Clement and Matt Breida, who are absolutely in a position where they could come into immense value this next year. And then I have good old Giovanni Bernard just kind of hanging out in the middle, just in case I feel like I need eight points per game. So uh, it's it's not an inspiring group of running backs. I think it's I think it's more than good enough. Since I'm only starting one, I feel great about my quarterbacks. I love Henry Hunter. Gerald Everett's a nice kind of a flyer in the 16th. And my wide receivers are super-duper juicy, if a little bit thin. So overall, I'm actually pretty happy with the way it turned out. Yeah, I almost took Michael Thomas at 105 there, and then he slipped all the way to 110. So I thought that was a a pretty standout pick by you there. Value is being created by all these running backs going in the first. If you're the kind of guy that likes wide receivers early still, and maybe I'm a little bit stubborn. And I talked about this when I was on the Dynasty Blueprint with uh, Ryan and Matt Williamson a month or two back. Um, I'm still a little bit stubborn about running backs early. Uh, It creates value for a guy like Michael Thomas, who's... At the ten, at, at number ten, I think is a really nice value for me. The other other pick uh, Dan and I were talking about all before off air was a Tyree Kill pick at two hundred three. That seems pretty early. Uh, talk about how much, or I guess why you like Hill at that, that that early spot there. Did you was it just because you knew he wasn't coming back to you and you wanted to grab him there, or, or would you would you always take him at that early in a, in the second round? Uh, Tyree Kill was the wide receiver eight this year in fifteen games with Alex Smith. I mean, I understand Alex Smith had a nice first half of the season throwing the ball downfield a little bit more, but we all kind of know how that how that kind of tailed off in the second half. Uh, I don't think Pat Mahomes is going to throw it to him any less than Alex Smith did. We may be a little bit less uh, a little bit less efficient in terms of a catch percentage, but uh, the 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 distance downfield of those targets 
has has the opportunity to be great. And I know this isn't kind of like high-level stats, but this is a guy who caught 75 of 105 targets and still somehow managed almost 16 yards per catch. That's absurd to be to be that efficient both in catch percentage and in yards per catch. Tyree Kill is really, 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 really good and is still somehow a little bit undervalued. When I did the Dynasty Trades pod a couple of weeks ago, I listed him as my favorite buy of the offseason, and I understand he's very expensive, but... Man, the the upside with Tyree Kill. He's my wide receiver seven. I think I'm the highest amongst DLF rankers on him, and I'm super duper okay with that. Yeah, um, let's let's. Go. Dan, you haven't said anything in a long time. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's 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 hurt by the beard comment. The beard <laughs> comment hurt his there. feelings. He's pouting. <laughs> Dan, was there a a, a a a favorite pick of yours that you made during your draft, or uh, and and also alternatively a, a, a pick that you kind of hate and wish. You, maybe you kind of got sniped on something and just kind of scrambled to pick something. Uh, address those two. Uh, well, I'd like to think that that I never scramble. Uh, that I always kind of have have something. <laughs> you know that there's 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 something for me. Um, I, I really did get sniped regularly, and it was by you most mostly, Matt. Uh, I know you got Chris Thompson a pick before. I I picked Dion Lewis. I, I prefer Tom Thompson uh, by quite a bit. Um, I made a mistake in the mid rounds when I took Jameis Winston, a lot like what Jeff was talking about with his choice of Goff. I could have waited at that position. Um, we were in this group with a lot of savvy owners that were going to wait on quarterbacks. I probably should have recognized that and continued to build my running back and wide receiver depth. Uh, thought that the, the youth was going to go away at the position. Uh, that wasn't necessarily true. Um, Ryan was able, able to, to add a young quarterback a few rounds later with Patrick Mahomes. I would have been just as happy with him in the 11th as I was with Jameis Winston in the 9th. And, and then I would have gotten a running back like Lamar Miller or Marlon Mack, who, who were both in my queue at the time as well. So, you know, I don't know if there was a, a huge glaring mistake. I, I went back and forth on a few picks and, um, you know, never really felt bad about an individual pick, but like I said earlier, at the end of it, I, I, I just kind of felt like it wasn't my team and a team that I would regularly build. So, um, I, I, I guess we can leave it at that. So maybe you took the win now approach to like to the extreme, and you would have maybe. I might have taken it too 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 far for sure. There, yeah. it was just far too many times where the young guy was the the one that was staring in my face. When I took Thielen in the third round, I I, I like Adam Thielen just fine. I feel like he's a good player and belongs probably somewhere in that third to fourth mid mid third to mid fourth. But there were other names there, and like the win now approach was telling me Rob Gronkowski, or if you want to take a wide receiver, take Thielen. Um, I felt like I wanted to take the wide receiver because I could get another tight end later, and I think that worked out with Jimmy Graham later on. But uh, you know, the youth guy would have taken Juju Smith or even Evan Ingram at that pick. So, you know, it, it's kind of funny to me when you look at a draft. Had Gronk gone the pick before, I probably would have taken Evan Ingram, and that would have been a round, a, a, an entire round before he actually went. So, it, you know, again, with the, with the draft versus auction, um, you never know what that value is going to be until the player comes off the board. There was a lot of really nice value at tight end with Gronk going in, in the mid-fourth. Evan Ingram going in the mid-fourth. I, I thought it was interesting that Zach Ertz went ahead of Ingram. Um, and, and right in there, I just constantly was looking at the board thinking, oh, I took Thielen, and now all these other younger guys are going off the board. I, I, I could have had them. Well, yeah, and, and you mentioned that because I, I honestly feel like with the with the influx of all these running backs that now kind of like the really rare commodity is these elite wide receivers, which is why I took Antonio Brown in the first over maybe, um, I think Ezekiel Elliott was, Elliott was there and Le'Veon Bell was certainly there. And I felt like I could certainly get one of these younger running backs coming back in the second. So that played into my strategy early too. Uh, Ryan, do you have a, well, I want to ask you about your, your favorite and least favorite pick, but first I, I also want to ask you about, 
Do you think uh, that the fact that this was kind of the first mock after the 2018 MFL rollover and the first draft where the rookies were added and there was really no sort by ADP? We were really, really honestly setting ADP at this point. So you had to scroll through and find your guys or, or, or compare them with your rankings or whatever. You couldn't just look at the ADP list and, and know who was coming up for you. Do you think that skewed at all the, the data for this uh, particular draft? Uh, I would say February is always my favorite month to uh, to run these mock drafts each year because mainly because you get the rookies in and that's just uh, a whole new aspect and we get to kind of see how people are going to value those those players but um, also what you mentioned is if we if we start the drafts early enough and we started these on the same day that uh, my fantasy league opened their 2018 sites uh, site then there is no ADP. Like you said, it's just alphabetical order. That's the only view. And I think in some ways that creates, I think it skews it in a good way. I think it creates the purest ADP we have because in a typical month we have, and, and I, I am so thankful for all the, the folks who help us do these mock drafts every month. Um, it, it gives us the data that we wouldn't have otherwise, but I know Personally, what I do when I get the email that I'm on the clock, a lot of times I'm just, uh, you know, I'm opening that app on my phone and I'm looking for, I'm looking at the list of top players available and, um, and, and just grabbing the the one that looks the best. Or if I know, if I have a, a position of need and you can't really do that this month, you have to take your time a little bit more. It does create some mistakes like like Jeff said earlier he overlooked Gronkowski accidentally so that happens from time to time but I also think because we're not relying on that best player available setting uh, it it's the the best ADP we have of the year yeah I I agree with you in that regard but I just kept looking at some of the players wondering why they were still there based on what we saw uh, uh, where they went, their positional, uh, where they went in, in the Jan- January mocks. For me, p- particularly, one player that stood out was Lamar Miller, who I think was in the mid-60s in the January mock. And I got him all the way down at 9.05. And I'm not a Lamar Miller fan at all, but it just felt like at that late that, that I had to kind of make that pick at that point. Um, but let's get back to your draft real quick, Ryan, before because we got to get out of here pretty soon. Did you have a favorite pick and a least favorite pick? Uh, I guess uh, for your sake, Matt, I, I would say my favorite pick was Evan Ingram, uh, just to rub that in a little <laughs> bit, the fourth round. Uh, uh, it hurts every time. It hurts every time. <laughs> you know, you know. if I could barge in just for a second, my favorite moment of the entire draft was getting the email that I was on the clock and clicking on it and looking at the draft. And, and you know how you look at the last five or six picks in case there was somebody that that you were eyeing for that pick and, and then looking at Matt's choice, one ahead of mine, and he, he chose Derrick Henry, but in his notes he, he put I hate you, Ryan McDowell. <laughs> so I looked at McDowell's pick and it's Evan Ingram and it, it actually made me chuckle. So it was my favorite moment of the draft. Oh uh, as as far as the least favorite pick, um I, I don't know. I'm James Washington maybe I already mentioned is the one I would I would not have made um, if this were a real league or if I just kind of had f- free reign and wasn't locked into to this uh, decision. Um, yeah, that's that's probably the one that stands out, I guess. And Jeff, wrap us up here with your favorite and least favorite pick. I, I imagine that every pick was your favorite pick because you don't you don't have any you don't do anything that you don't like to do. So I imagine all of these were your favorites. Yeah, basically, every, my favorite pick was whatever pick I just made. It just they just got better and better <laughs> as the draft went on. Uh, I, I think my favorite pick was probably Kenyon Drake, who I got a full like two and a half, three rounds after his January ADP. Uh, I'm not really sure why. Perhaps for what we just talked about with with guys maybe sliding a little bit, guys that you don't like. Kenyon Drake isn't always on the top of your head when you're doing a mock draft where you don't have that preset ADP in front of you. So maybe I kind of stole one a little bit, a little bit there. Uh, I thought Tariq Cohen in the tenth round was another pick that that maybe kind of qualifies for that. My least favorite pick is is pretty clearly Jared Goff. Uh, Dan said it really well earlier. Basically, I probably should have recognized the the type of league I was in, and, and the guys I was drafting with, and held off on quarterback, which is very much something I always do. I'm almost always the last guy to draft a starting quarterback. 
I'm not sure what came over me. Um, I, I think a lot of it was when I looked in the eighth round, there just wasn't a whole lot a whole lot there that excited me. Like I said, the pick, if it wasn't golf, was going to be Martavis Bryant. And, <laughs> man, I was not on board with Martavis Bryant, and then I decided to get on board with him last year, which is just the most <laughs> typical Jeff thing of all time. I resist and resist and resist with players. I tell you what, if you ever want to know what player is going to bomb – Ask me who it is for the season that I resisted for the previous three and hopped on board with. I guarantee you that guy eats crap this year. I, I don't know who it is yet, but it will be somebody. Last Kobe year, Fleener. Last <laughs> e. <laughs> what is it with you over there picking at me? Uh, no, <laughs> first Josh Gordon and now Kobe Fleener. You, if you come after Brian Quick, I will come to San Diego right now tonight <laughs> and handle business. Uh, <laughs> and so, like last year, it was Martavis. Who knows who it's going to be this year? No, well, that was fun, you guys. Uh, we are out of time here. I did want to go through a little bit more of our thought process behind the picks, but we are pretty much out of time. So we're going to wrap up for this week. Thank you guys so much for listening to the DLF Dynasty Podcast. Please, once again, if you want to be in our listener league, uh, that's going to be based on the rookie recap series that we did in the previous six episodes. Uh, reach out to myself, Ryan, or Dan on Twitter. You can find Ryan at RyanMC23, Dan at DMiler22, myself at MPricer. And if you want to just... You know, tune in to see some periscope uh, shower talk. Go ahead and follow Jeff at FF Jeff M. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you again next week.